Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I'm, I'm delighted to be able to join you today from Albuquerque. Uh, I want to thank Anne Lipscomb and Kim, and uh, who are in the, the Appamata Zendo this morning, and uh, also Nancy, who's... Uh, Nancy, I forget where you are. Are you, are you in North Carolina now? Anyway, thank you so much for being our online monitor uh, and um, uh, already skillfully managing several breakout rooms so that I could talk to people in practice discussion. I appreciate that. I would like to take a minute to um, ask, I, I really wanna be able to have each of us to just have a second to hear each other's voices. I think that that's really important. So I want to, uh, what I'm gonna do is just Briefly, I'll, I'll call people by name and ask you if you would just say where you are and maybe in a few words, give an example of abundance that you are appreciating right now. Okay, so I hope that'll work. So let me start with uh, Anne and Kim. Can you do that? Can you say, well, we know where you are, but if you would say an example of uh, something that you are appreciating today, that you're grateful for, that you see as abundance that affects you. I'm Kim, and I'm grateful for the shadows of the leaves on the window. I'm Anne, and when I walked up to Appamata this morning, there was a bird calling that was really different. And I stopped and I looked around and I finally got to Appamata. I looked up in the giant catalpa tree that we have, and way up at the top in the sun, I could see a bird with a red breast. It was the first robin I'd heard. That seemed abundant. <clears throat> Thank you, Kim and Ann. Uh, Nelda. Good morning. Um, I'm Nelda, and what feels like abundance is my breath. Thank you. Nelly, can you unmute and speak? I am Nelly. I'm in Avila, Spain, and uh, I'm grateful for <clears throat> the relationships we have and the presence of the Sangha. Thank you. Jamie, welcome. Can you unmute? Hi, I'm Jamie. I'm uh, in Salem, Oregon, and um, uh, yeah, after two sitting periods this morning, I went in the house um, to use the bathroom and um, my little two-year-old son was up and just his buoyant energy and uh, fresh little two-year-old body really just touched me. I feel very grateful for him. <clears throat> Thank you, Jamie. Becky, hi. Hi. I'm Becky. I am in Vancouver, British Columbia in Canada. And 
as soon as you said it, the abundance I felt was all these wonderful faces and people that I'm here with. And that just felt like such an abundance. And I am grateful to be able to be with you. Thank you. Ellen? You're muted still. I'm Ellen, I'm in Richmond, Virginia, and also grateful for uh, the song. Uh, but I would say, uh, just sitting here, I'm grateful to have this meditation room with the song. Thank you. Rosemary. Good morning, I'm Rosemary, I'm in New Jersey, and um, I'm just feeling an abundance for being alive. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> Bob Withrow, welcome. Oh, uh, good morning. Uh, Bob from uh, Austin, Texas. And uh, I too was uh, so <coughs> grateful to hear the sounds of nature out my back, wind back door this morning, and especially the sounds of all the wild birds who were just singing at the top of their lungs. It was beautiful and, and abundant. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Joan Mueller, Bill, welcome. You're still muted, Joan, sorry. Ah, there you go. Hello, we're in uh, Austin, Texas. I'm here with my husband, Bill. And we had the pleasure of sitting silently on our couch side by side this morning with nothing to do but just sit there together. My husband's 94, and we appreciate every day. That's Thank what I'm looking for. Bill, do you want to say something? No, except I'm now, now, now more like 97. <laughs> no, he said nothing except I lied. He thinks he's 97, but he isn't. <laughs> Thank you. Nancy? I'm Nancy. I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, I'm grateful for everything in my life. Charlotte, North Carolina. Claudine, good morning. Morning, Joel. I'm Claudine. I'm in Switzerland. And I am grateful because the sun in the afternoon enters my living room and makes it I, the light is such a happiness thank you lynn good morning good morning uh, i'm lynn and i'm from uh Wimber i live in wimberley texas which is near austin and i just have deep deep appreciation for this wonderful wonderful sangha uh, and I would like to also uh, uh, appreciate the women and men who who brought this tech, discovered this technology so that this worldwide sangha could be together. Thank you, Darcy. Hmm. I'm. Uh, I think just appreciative of. Uh, everything uh, that I'm really feeling the sun coming through the windows and flooding the house and I'm feeling my husband just pattering around in the background and I'm 
really grateful for him, which I don't know if he can even hear because he's got his headphones on over there. <laughs> but we're very grateful to have each other and I'm grateful for all of you. Still muted, Kathy. I wasn't sure if you called me. Um, hi, I'm Kathy, and I'm in Austin. And uh, I just, the first um, thought was, it's just so wonderful to see all of you. And um, what a gift. So thank you all. Thank you, Kathy. Joan Harmon, hi. Hello. <clears throat> Uh, I am in Austin, Texas, and um, I got in my car to drive over to Appamata. I just got back into town yesterday, and I'm a little off balance, and got in my car to drive to Appamata, and it's the Austin Marathon. <laughs> and so the road was closed, so I turned, and I said, I'll go another way. And I went, and it was closed also, and I said, we have all these wonderful people who work to make this virtual um gathering possible i will go home and join that way and i'm just so grateful for kim and ann and joel that are making this all possible this morning and nancy thank you john carolyn good morning good morning um it's been a really busy busy week so i'm grateful just to be able to sit in quiet with all of you. And I'm also grateful I've had, um, I have stage four cancer. So I get these interesting symptoms. And one of them this week was extraordinary pain when I swallowed, but with some medication, it's going away. And I am with tears grateful that I don't have to feel pain. Thank you, Caroline. Mehdi? Good morning. You're still muted, Mehdi. Am I okay? Yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I felt I really needed to be in the group and just uh, see, you know, you and others. Uh, I'm in Austin and enjoying the a quiet and a peaceful nature at this point. The storm has passed and we have had several good events in the family, wedding and you know graduation and stuff like that. So it was a busy month, very nice. And uh, I just uh, uh, enjoying, you know, coming back. I mean, I am, I'm sorry that uh, we have to do it online, <laughs> not in person. Anyway, yeah, I appreciate, yeah, being with you. Thank you. Yeah. Janav, welcome. Hi, I'm in Auburn, Maine, and um, I also feel grateful for the loving abundance of our sangha. And today is a nice lazy day. I'm feeling gratitude for my supportive neighbors and my cuddly cats. Melen, welcome. 
Hi. Um, I'm grateful for my mother's life and my pets and for all of you that mentioned beautiful things this morning. Thank you. Thank you. And Milan, you're in Mexico City, is that not right? Yes, that's correct. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Anne. Good, good morning or afternoon, depending on where you are. Um, I'm in Austin, Texas, and um, I am also grateful for so many of the beautiful um, things that people have been mentioning, and also uh, in general for Sangha and being here, and also um, for the Dharma. Thank you, Anne. Olivia, I hope you can hear me. I see your icon, but not you right now. Uh, if you're willing to speak, please unmute. Looks like Olivia may have, oh, oh here she is. Great, hi. Good morning. So Olivia is in, I know that she's in Albuquerque, uh, not far from me. We haven't gotten together for coffee yet, but we will one day. And um, Olivia, so I was asking people if they would name something of abundance that they're appreciating right now. Do you, does anything jump into your mind for that? Well, the sunshine in the winter, uh, we have a lot of sunny days. Life gives me life. I can go for my walks. I just feel so much better with the sunshine. So it's really always shining, sometimes behind the clouds, like today. Mm -hmm. Thank and I'm you. Appreciative of the Sangha. I'm oh, online most Sundays. I appreciate it very much. Excellent. Thank you so much, Olivia. Okay, well, that took a while, but I, I really appreciate every, everyone's additions and, and, and what you bring is what makes this Sangha. Thank you so much. So um, I have a talk. It's now uh, 17 minutes after the hour, and I, I have a talk that's going to last about 20 minutes, maybe 25, and then I'd like to have some brief uh, small group interaction after that that I'll describe later. Um, and um, we'll have to see who is connected, see if anybody else joins us before then is in terms of what sorts of groups we break up into, how big they are, and how much time we have to spend for that. But, okay, to start, because it is, for me, an ever-present Dharma gate, today I want to talk about fools and jerks some of whom are outside of us and uh, some of whom are fools and jerks that live inside of us and how the precepts can help us find a compassionate path to meeting that whole crowd on equal ground. Um, the talk involves some thoughts from some current philosophers and uh, Zen teachers and a long, typically confounding quote from Dogen that I hope you will enjoy. Uh, my talk, 
uh, is taking off from remarks that were made last weekend by John Eric Steinbommer about the Bodhisattva's vow by Tore Zenji. Um, uh, in the translation that we use, uh, well, I'm sorry, I'm gonna uh, make a side note here. Tore Zenji. Most of the people in uh, Appamata's chant book uh, uh, who who provided the text that we quote from uh, and and chant and and uh, pay particular attention to were um, ancient folks, uh, maybe a thousand years ago. Uh, in terms of social generations of twenty years, um, maybe uh, sixty or seventy generations ago. Uh, not so Tori Zenji. He lived from. Um, 1721 to 1792, or about 11 generations ago. So much closer in time to us than people like uh, Tozan Ryokai, the, the Chinese Chan teacher, Dongshan Ling Jie, uh, who uh, lived about 1200 years ago, or 60 generations, or Bodhidharma, whom we consider a lot, 75 generations, which is about 1500 years ago, and not to mention uh, Siddhartha Gautama, about 140 generations ago. I just, for some reason, it, it seems important to me to have a sense of that kind of timescape, you know, the, 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 where we are in connections with these people in our lived experience. So um, last week, as I said, John Eric Steinbommer gave a thought-provoking talk that centered on the Bodhisattva's vow by Tori Zenji. And in the translation that we use at Appamata, the, the, the vow begins with what I will paraphrase as three points. Uh, the first two of which are descriptions, and the third of which is addressed directly to us. The first description, everything including birds, beasts, and non-sentient creatures uh, amount to um, the warm flesh and blood of the Tathagata, the awakened one, the Buddha nature that is all around us. Everything is, is not just Buddha nature, but that powerful metaphor, the warm flesh and blood that sustain us and that uh, provide our food, drink, and protections of life. Um, and then the second descriptive point, our ancestors understood this and they responded by showing tender care to everyone and everything. Uh, and then the text addresses us directly, making the, the third point, uh, and in the, in, again, in the translations that we use, um, who can be ungrateful or not respectful, even to senseless things, not to speak of humans, even though they may be fools, be warm and compassionate toward them. If by any chance they should turn against us, become sworn enemies and persecute us, we should sincerely bow down with humble language in the reverent understanding that they are the merciful messengers of the awakened one, the Tathagata, who use devices to emancipate us from blind tendencies that are produced and accumulated upon ourselves by our own egoistic delusion and attachment through counsel, countless cycles of space and time. So John Eric talked about the relationship that we can cultivate toward the types of fools that Tori Zenji described and about the remarkable turn involved in bowing down 
to uh, enemies, sworn enemies who have chosen to persecute us, bowing down to them and seeing such people as messengers from Buddha who are emancipating us from blind tendencies, egoistic delusions and attachments. Um, I wanna talk some more drawing from some other sources uh, about uh, fools or, or, or and in other in other versions of the bodhisattva vows there's there's a, a a kind of a softened tone speaking of foolish people instead of fools um, and i i want to talk about again the the way in which they kind of seem to fall into two groups uh, reading between the lines there are fools in the sense of people who don't understand something important that we enlightened people do understand. Uh, and then there are fools of a second type who are making a choice and who turn against us and become sworn enemies and persecute us. The first group, as Tori Zenji says, we should pay tender care toward. The second group we should bow down to because they are, in essence, our saviors. Um, as you may recall, I'm leading the Appamata Precepts program this year, and I've been doing some reading that lines up with what John Eric was pointing to last week, and I want to uh, want to talk about that, and then later I want to ask you to meet, as I said before, in some small groups and do some precepts work. So one of the books I've been reading is called A Theory of Jerks and Other Philosophical Misadventures by a uh, well-known philosopher named Eric Schwitzgebel, uh, who's an American. He lives in, um, currently lives in uh, California. Uh, the virtue of having a theory of jerks, Schwitzgebel says, is, quote, it might help you figure out if you yourself are one. <laughs> he gives an et et etymology of the word jerk. It originally derived curiously, from the term jerkwater, from the small towns along 19th century trail route, trail lines, or I'm sorry, rail lines in uh, throughout the United States. Uh, and there, there were what they called jerkwater towns, towns so small that, and unimportant that the conduct, uh, the engineers of the train wouldn't stop for any time longer than it took to pull a chain and dump some water into the tanks of the train so that it, the steam engine could keep going. So not time enough for people to get off and interact with the town. And um, there were a lot of uh, theatrical traveling groups uh, around at this town who went from town to town. And uh, they took apparently to calling people who live in such town jerks, meaning ignorant, lacking in class, badly dressed, easy to mock, bumpkins, as it were. Um, and there was also a sense of the term that derived from this bumpkinness uh, that, that gets expressed in such uh, phrases as, she married some jerk from her home, hometown, or I felt like a jerk when my wife left me. No. So, Schwitzgebel then describes a more modern sense of the term that is the one that's kind of more often used these days. He says, I submit that the unifying 
core of being a jerk in the moral sense is this. The jerk culpably fails to appreciate the perspective of others around him. He genders it, the term is male, by the way. Uh, and later on, he, he says the opposite is a sweetheart, which he also genders as male. And uh, for reasons that I, I will skip over for now, but jerks uh, fail, culpably fail to appreciate the perspective of others around them, treating others as tools to be manipulated or fools to be dealt with rather than as moral and epistemic peers. This failure has both an intellectual dimension, he says, and an emotional dimension. And it has those two dimensions on both sides of the relationship. The jerk himself is both intellectually and emotionally defective. And what he defectively fails to appreciate is both the intellectual and emotional perspectives of the people around him. The jerk cannot appreciate how he might be wrong and how others might be right about some matter of fact. And what, and what other people want or value doesn't register to the jerk as of interest to him, except derivatively upon his own interest. The bumpkin in ignorance captured in the earlier use of jerk has become a type of moral ignorance. And they, he gives examples, uh, inviting one to enter the world of the jerk. Uh, and um, the line of people in the post office is a mass of unimportant fools. It's a felt injustice that you must wait while they bumble through their requests. He gives other examples, but uh, all of us are probably familiar with videos available online of um, people who are upset about missing a flight or having a flight canceled, who react by yelling at or even atta physically attacking uh, a gate attendant at an airport, that sort of thing, or, or berating or attacking a clerk in a store because the store requires masking. Uh, to uh, help deal with the COVID uh, epidemic, et cetera. We've all, I mean, I've seen way too many such videos and they're very painful. So um, Svishkebel, as I say, says the opposite of the jerk is the sweetheart. The sweetheart sees others around him, even strangers, as individually distinctive people with valuable perspectives, whose desires and opinions interests and goals are worthy of attention and respect. The sweetheart yields his place in line to the hurried shopper, stops to help the person who has dropped her papers, calls an acquaintance with an embarrassed apology for having been unintentionally rude. In a debate, the sweetheart sees how he might be wrong and the other person right. He, uh, Gable continues, the jerk's moral and emotional failure is obvious. The intellectual failure is obvious too. No one is as right about everything as the jerk thinks he is. He could learn by listening. And one of the things he might learn is the true scope of his jerkitude, a fact about which, as, I, as he says, I will explain, the all out jerk is inevitably ignorant. However, he says, no one is a perfect jerk or a perfect sweetheart. We have both of those aspects in our personalities. Human behavior, of course, varies hugely in context. Different situations, department meetings, Fitzgabel says, traveling in close quarters might bring out the jerk in some and the sweetheart in others. And I, I note that 
that Schwitz Gable does not mention war or hurricanes, or earthquakes, or uh, serious illness, uh, but it just goes with the sorts of irritations that affect rich, educated, upper-class people. And I think um, that there's, that that's because the culpability that comes with being comfortable and well-off is greater than, and, and that, that people who are caught in these other uh, uh, issues uh, are less culpable because of them. So, so. There's another example uh, that which comes from the novelist, uh, late novelist, David Foster Wallace. He gave a talk at Kenyon College in 2005 that has become famous on the internet uh, called This is Water. And he describes the life of graduates of modern elite colleges like the people he's addressing he describes their life as a constant invitation to jerkitude, a kind of tidal pull made worse by social class, affluence, and education. And he argues that self-centeredness is not a property of those jerks over there, but is hardwired into each of us, showing up as a general attitude of irritation, boredom, dismissiveness, and craving that gets, uh, and this attitude gets triggered by any delay or social friction. Again, much worse for people who think that they're kind of because of their education or their class or their affluence, think that they're above having to account for what other people go through. These qualities uh, leave us thinking that we are free, uh, Wallace says, when instead we are trapped in what he calls our skull-sized kingdoms. He says that there is a possibility of awakening out of one's self-centered irritation to actual freedom. Quote, the really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and being able truly to care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in petty, unsexy ways every day. So being what Schwitzgebel calls a sweetheart. Um, and we can choose to act like a sweetheart, even though our selfishness is part of our genetic and cultural inheritance, going back maybe 200,000 years, maybe 10,000 generations that have been handed down to us and that are encoded in our bodies, into the structures of our brain and the way our bodies work. So, um, uh, I'm going to mention a third source here. There are probably people who remember in this context something that I had forgotten until last week, which is that the Buddhist teacher Brad Warner wrote a book that came out in 2016 called, or it's based on uh, Dogen Zenji's great compendium, the Shobogenzo. And Dogen lived in 1200, uh, about 43 generations ago. I'm going to keep talking about this generation thing. And the book is called Don't Be a Jerk and Other Practical Advice from Dogen, Japan's Greatest Zen Master. Warner says that one of his favorite chapters of Shobogenzo is titled Shoaku Makuso, or what he or, or, or what is typically described as not doing wrong. So from the one, one of the um, 
uh, first precepts that are adopted by Mahayana Buddhists. Uh, <clears throat> being focused on the Buddhist precepts, according to Warner, uh, it makes it uh, this chapter about how the Buddhist precepts have one very simple message. Don't be a jerk. That's pretty much all there is to it. Uh, Warner does not define, at least I haven't found it yet, he doesn't define the word jerk. So I'm going with the way that uh, Schwitzgebel has done it in, in interpreting uh, his words here. Um, Warner continues, ethics and morality are practical matters. People get wrapped up in the words used to describe ethical action, but being ethical is just doing what's right and not doing what's not right. Simple as that. Of course, sometimes it's hard to know what's right. That's when we rely on the precepts. In this chapter of Shobogenzo, Dogen is trying to indicate the basis of all ethical action, and it turns out it's as simple as not being a jerk. He makes an Warner makes an important point that I, I think uh, that I that I want to draw out in in what I talk about next. The Dogen says, "A jerk is not something that you are. Being a jerk, he use, he hyphenates this so that being a jerk." Is, uh, is, is uh, being used as a noun, uh, a gerundive, I guess. Uh, being a jerk is something that you do. It's not something that you are. There is no jerk outside of you being a jerk. When you cease to be a jerk, the jerk that you were when you were being a jerk vanishes instantly. Uh, he quotes uh, Dogen at length, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repeat a lot of it. Uh, and I will say it's uh, it, it's a, as as a quotation. He it's heavily footnoted with other sources, but it uh, it reflects Warner's own uh, sensibility, who came to being a, a Zen student after being in a punk rock band, and and he uses all sorts of punk rock uh, analogies and 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 uh, pop culture analogies throughout. Uh, as indicated by the boiling down of the message to don't be a jerk. Um, <clears throat> but I'm gonna, and I'm gonna read quite a bit of it uh, because it is so great in a, lot, uh, uh, in a lot of the ways that Dogen is always great. Uh, so here's Warner quoting Dogen. Don't be a jerk wasn't a teaching someone intentionally invented. It existed before anyone put it into words. When we hear it, we hope that we can learn to do the right thing and not be a jerk. This is a pretty big deal. It's on the scale of the whole of time and the entire universe. The scale of not being a jerk is in the not being part. Just don't do jerk-like things. Again, from Dogen, when jerk-type actions are not done by someone, jerk-type actions do not exist. Even if you live in a place where you could act like a jerk, even if you face circumstances in which you could be a jerk, even if you hang out with nothing but a bunch of jerks, the power of not doing jerk type things conquers all. Jerk type action has no fixed form. It has no existence until someone does it. If we don't act like jerks, jerk type actions cannot exist. You can do jerk type things or you can avoid doing jerk type things. The moment you know that jerk type action does not exist outside your own contact, that is the realization of the truth. 
This is not a once and for all realization. It appears dynamically, moment after moment. When enlightened people understand that not being a jerk requires not doing jerk type things, they behave like decent people at each moment in the past, present, and future. At every moment, no matter what we're doing, we need to understand that not being a jerk is how someone becomes enlightened. This state has always belonged to us. Cause and effect make us act. By not being a jerk now, you create the cause of not being a jerk in the future. Our action is not predestined, nor does it spontaneously occur. Not, by not being a jerk at this very moment, you enact non-jerkness and make it appear in the world. It's not that you as a regular person are destroyed by doing the right thing, and yet you as a regular person have dropped away, and what remains is an enlightened being. When you look at it this way, you realize that being a jerk is refrained from. Aided by this understanding, we can penetrate not being a jerk and realizing it decisively through Zen practice. There is no being a jerk apart from what you actually do. Being a jerk doesn't vanish as if it were a thing in and of itself. You simply stop doing jerk type things. Some people think that being a jerk arises out of past causes and conditions, but don't see how they themselves are those causes and conditions. Those guys are pretty sad cases. The seeds of Buddhahood also come from causes and conditions. Jerk type actions neither exist nor don't exist. Evil doesn't exist or not exist. It is neither done or not done. Learning this in practice is the great universal realization. You can look at it subjectively or objectively. When you finally grasp this point, even the thought, oh hell, I was a jerk back then, is just energy arising from your desire not to be a jerk again. However, to say that this realization is some kind of weird rationale for being a jerk is totally stupid. The relationship between being a jerk and the not of not being a jerk isn't one of a donkey looking at a will. It's like a will looking at a donkey. A will looking at a will, a donkey looking at a donkey, a person looking at a person, and a mountain looking at a mountain. In other words, it's the mutual relationship of all things involved. So I hope you can see why I wanted to read that whole thing. It gets wilder and wilder as it goes along. And I do love it that Dogen says some jerky things in the middle of it, like how some people are sad cases and other people are just stupid. And, and it's something that pops up in Dogen's writing every once in a while. <clears throat> the main thing is that Dogen does not emphasize that humans are hardwired to be selfish uh, and kind of the opposite. And he seems to be saying that following the precept of not doing evil can simply arise naturally and fulfills all the Buddha Dharma. It's a pretty amazing concept to try and, and even think about. So another source is a new book, which I've just started uh, by a, a teacher named Nancy Mujo Baker, a Dharma heir of the teacher Bernie Glassman. Uh, uh, and Nancy Baker uh, herself is a retired philosophy professor, 
And her book is called Opening to Oneness, A Practical and Philosophical Guide to the Zen Precepts. Like Diane Eshin Rizetto, whose book we use extensively in the precepts program at Afamata, uh, Baker emphasizes bringing courageous, non-judgmental inquiry to our daily actions and intentions with a focus on self-compassion in meeting parts of ourselves that we typically suppress and push into the shadows. Things that we wouldn't want to talk about with other people. She says that the precepts can naturally arise when we do not exile the parts we are ashamed to admit to. She says that without steady detailed examination of these parts, the killer or the liar or the thief inside each of us, we are avoiding the precepts of non-killing, non-stealing, and non-lying, not working with them. So this, is, this to me seems like a big difference from what Dogen is saying, but I haven't got to the second part of the book where she integrates this with Dogen's teachings. So I'll get, I, I hope that later on in the precepts class, I'll be able to do that. But the reason I mention it today is because she suggests that the only effective way to do such examination is not by yourself, but in a group. And she has some, some pretty stark sounding uh, exercises of meeting with people in a group and using language that um, really gets to the bottom of, of uh, a lot of these impulses that, and, and, and brings them to light so that they can be held in compassion with the group. Uh, and I'll say that these com these exercises seem very compelling to me, although at this stage I find them pretty scary. So what I want to suggest is an exercise that's kind of a pastel version of what she's suggesting, that we would break into groups and do. And um, in, it has to do with examining how being a jerk as a noun can arise within us and how we can culpably choose to take that path or not, uh, and where that mode of activity comes from, and where the energy arises, and how we can bring compassion to the parts of us that act out of jerkiness. So I'm going to read these, these instructions. I've sent this to, to Nancy and to Kim, and Kim has a printout to share with and Lipscomb in the in the Zendo, and then Nellie's. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, Nancy says that she will be able to put these into the chat for all the breakout rooms. Uh, so it's a little long, but it's not really as complicated as it sounds. And in all, uh, it should last about 15 minutes. I, I um, and it doesn't give us much time. We'll we will I think inevitably go over our normal one hour time period for the talk with this, but I, I hope that you will participate. Um, and so here are the instructions that we break up into groups of three, and this, this may not work for everybody. Uh, I would suggest, uh, Nancy, that you, you uh, if you can, put somebody uh, in, uh, from the online group into, the, into connection with the, the folks in the Zendo. And the rest of us can be in groups of three. So as much as that works out, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm too fatuits to figure out the math right now. Uh, if it's a smaller number or a larger number in one of the groups, that'll be fine. Uh, so in each group, I suggest that we spend 
three minutes sitting in silence. Uh, the instructions will say five uh, when you see them, but time is short, so let's make it three. Three minutes sitting in quiet. During that time, first remember that you are nothing less than a living, breathing expression of the entire universe that's been unfolding for billions of years and has its unique expression as Eunice in you right now. So be as open and, and expansive as you can. Then turn inside and invite to come forward any parts of you that you might know as sometimes wanting to react to hurt or frustration with Fritz Gable's culpable jerkiness, that is anger, vengefulness, dismissiveness, contempt, or other hot energies. See if you can, you can recall a time like that and see if you can see what it feels like in your body and how it wants to come out. Ask the parts to tell you how those energies arise, what they feel like and how they play out. Listen without judgment or blame as those parts let you know. Then repeat back to those parts what you have heard or seen and ask them if they agree with how, you've re with how you are reading it back to them. Ask them if they feel met and what feeling met does or doesn't do for them. It's a, that's an open question, I think. And thank the parts for coming forward. Okay, so that's gonna, that's only three minutes. So it's a lot of, a lot to go through for three minutes and maybe, maybe the whole process can't be done in that amount of time, but give it a shot. Uh, when the timer rings, I would say each person would have uh, two minutes for being held in compassion as the focus of the group, whose members, whose other members will remain silent. During that two minutes, each person can report on the experience of that interior inquiry, or they can be silent if it seems better. And but but they will be being held either way in compassion by the members of the group. And they should and, and you should know that when you were in that space. And then at the end of that period, two minutes for each people so or each person so about six minutes altogether, each person can take one minute each to reflect on what they have heard from the others or on the experience of holding others in compassion. Or again, you can remain silent for one minute per person. So this should work out, you know, after kind of getting situated and, and choosing a timekeeper and, and going over the instructions, it should amount to about 15 minutes in all. Um, three minutes for sitting together in silence, uh, turning inward uh, toward parts that want to act like a jerk, if they can be contacted. Two minutes each to share the experience of contacting those parts or to be silent, being held in compassion. And one minute each for sharing or being silent. 